we'll want to join ourselves together in Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin by reading verse 1 to verse 11 after I pray. So if you will join me and ask God to bless this hour of worship for his glory and his purposes in his church. Father, the songs this morning, even the reading of Isaiah 45, have declared once again the exaltation of our God, the sovereignty of a father that loves people enough to send his own son to die for our souls, to pay for our sins. And as those ones that have been redeemed by faith in your son, Jesus Christ, we are gathered this morning to worship you, to praise you, to love you, and to adore you, to give reverent attention to your word, to your people. And during this hour of worship, when our attention is focused on your written word to us, I pray that you would give to us a special dispensation or ministry of your grace that we might understand, that we might apply, and that we might be transformed because our God has spoken to us this morning. Give to me the ability to speak well, accurately, and clearly on what is before us, but give to each of us ears that will hear what the Spirit says to the church. And we pray for the glory of God this morning in his church. In Christ's name, amen. Philippians chapter 2, and follow along with me as I read verse 1 down through verse 11. Philippians chapter 2, beginning verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." If I were to ask you this morning what significant event happened in 1776, what would you say? You would answer by saying, we declared as a nation our independence, right? Our independence from England. And yet, why is it that we are so enamored by the crown to this day? And I'm saying this because I have been following, as many of you have, the news, and for years we are focused on whatever that royal family is doing, whether it's the queen mother or her children or who they marry or when they're going to give birth to yet another royal member of the family. Even this past week, I was noticing what they wear is essential for us to know. 
because one is engaged to another and apparently the cameras focus on what that engaged person is wearing and they discovered that what they're wearing came right out of a, a clothing catalog so you can buy it too and wear what this royal person is wearing. And then just this week, because this is St. Patrick's Day, oh my goodness, the prince who married this woman is wearing something green that is so fetching and so flattering that it sets her apart. And you wonder, do these people ever wear jeans and a t-shirt? <laughs> I happen to watch a British show about cars, and I know some of you do as well. It's kind of a comedy, but it shows lots of cool cars. And it's amazing how those three British uh, television show co-hosts will mock America. American cars, American movies, how we do things. And yet we wait upon their every breath and their every movement. When the crown moves, America takes notice. In our text this morning, and I'm transitioning now to the Word of God, so follow <laughs> along with me, we're observing the royal family of heaven. And the verses that are before us are so majestic, verse 9, 10, and 11, that the Word of God is demanding that we take note of what the royal family is doing. To the extent that as Paul has been writing, you and I are to be focused on one another. In this study that we have been doing from verse 1 now through verse 11, the focus of attention, the focus of instruction is on the unity of the church, our bond of fellowship together, the Christian love and the, the connection we have with the so, social fabric of the body of Christ. That is the main theme and subject. In verses 1 to 4, we see that oneness of Christ. In verse 1, that Christ is working among us. Verse 2, we are commanded to maintain that kind of unity of fellowship. Verse 3 and 4 talks about our selflessness in serving the needs and interests of one another. And then in verse 5, the command is made clear. Have this attitude in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And that attitude is the humility of mind that Christ owns when he takes upon the incarnation. And then Paul ventures into what many scholars believe is an early church New Testament hymn from verse 6 down through verse 11. And it's not hard to see where this could be a hymn of the early church in proclaiming the glory of Jesus Christ in his incarnation and what he was willing in his humility of mind to do for us the setting aside of his glory and taking on the form of a slave, taking on the appearance or the likeness of men and humbling himself even to the point of death, Paul says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Our attention is then turned in verse 9 to this marvelously royal text. And I would think that after verse 8 we would be convicted sufficiently in regard to our unity of fellowship and our Christian love and how we serve one another. It would be enough to see the incarnation, to see what Christ, the Son of God, was willing to do for us. Such that if Paul stopped at verse 8 and then returned to that subject, commending to the church 
to be one with each other, to serve one another in Christian love, he would have made his point. But the text does not stop there. It's not the end of the subject. And the passage presses us further to consider now the exaltation of Christ. And we might well ask of ourselves this morning, how does the exaltation of Christ add to this discussion of Christian unity? And to answer this, God's word points us to the glory of the royal family. And that will be our objective this morning. To see with our own eyes this royal family, this exaltation. And then to apply it to this subject of Christian unity. The exaltation of Jesus Christ in these verses is shown to be, and this is very important to our understanding this morning, it is shown to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 45. And that's why it is essential that we started our worship service in the reading of that text. Because there the prophet declares in no uncertain terms that the Creator God is one God and there is no other. He alone is the Savior. All that fall under His saving grace will be honored in Him. There is no other God. And then the passage that is in this New Testament hymn, here in Philippians chapter 2, is quoted. That before this God, and there is no other, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This tells us that the early church understood that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy and that He is the one true God and that apart from Him there is no other. We're going to see more of this later in our study this morning. But in addition to this, it is important to see that Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 does not present us with a new subject, but is a continuation of the previous verses. What does verse 9 begin saying? For this reason also. In other words, picking up on the thoughts that have just been communicated to the church. For this reason, and we ask, what reason is Paul referring to? And the obvious answer comes to us in verses 6, 7, 8, because of the incarnation of Christ, because of his humiliation, for that reason, because of what Christ did, he is exalted. Therefore, we are to discern that because of the humiliation of Jesus Christ, he is now highly exalted because Jesus set aside the external glories of his divine nature and took on the form of a slave to serve our greatest needs, he is now supremely exalted. But Paul has been careful here to show us a fundamental truth in this kind of unselfish service towards others. Recall again that what was described in the incarnation of Christ are the works of Jesus himself. As you reflect back on verse 6, 7, and 8, you see this is what Christ did for us. Even though he existed as God, he set aside his privileges as God. He humbled himself by taking on himself the form of a slave. He humbled himself in taking on the appearance of man and dying even death on a cross. It's all the work of Christ, is it not? 
Verse 6, 7, and 8, it's about what Christ did. Now there's a transition in verse 9. God the Father responds. Because this is what Christ did, the Father in heaven exalts. And so what we see in verses 9, 10, and 11 is the response of God towards the, towards the humiliation of His Son. This is consistent with what Jesus taught. And you see this on your note sheet. I've included Matthew chapter 23. But this is consistent with what Jesus Christ taught, declaring really his own testimony by saying to us, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That is Christ giving to us his own testimony. But at the same time, he's instructing us. This is what we are to do. And for the person that exalts himself in this life, he will be humbled. Isaiah 45 declared that, did it not? And again, we're going to see this in just a few moments. But according to the word of God, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is a call to the church. And at the same time, it is the testimony of our Savior. It's what he did for us. He humbled himself for us that he might be exalted. And I believe this helps us understand the dignity of Christ's humiliation, the dignity of the cross. As the world looked upon the cross back in that day, they saw nothing but shame. And even many today think about the gospel and the cross that we preach. To them, it's a shameful thought. It's a foolish thing. But as Paul writes to the Corinthian church, to the believer, it's the power of God. So this helps us, this, this passage in verse 9, 10, and 11 helps us to see the dignity of the humiliation, the incarnation of Christ, even the death of Christ on a cross. We can see the dignity of it. And in addition, it addresses some of the perversions of the gospel that even today the church is having to battle. There are liberal-minded theologians that downplay the substitutionary atonement, claiming that since God is this gentle God of love, He would never demand the bloodiness and the violence of the cross that men brought against His Son. And that is to say that the substitutionary atonement is unnecessary and that Christ died needlessly. And you wonder, how can any theologian that claims to be a Christian make such a declaration? And in truth, they cannot be Christian. They cannot be a follower of Christ and deny the substitutionary atonement of the Son. Why? Because right here in Philippians 2, God exalts it. It's exalted by God. In addition, there are those who suggest that God is nothing more than an angry and a hostile and a temperamental God. And that Jesus somehow had to step in and rescue us from God's anger. Now there is a hint of truth in that. God is angry with the sins of mankind. And truly Christ intervened with his sacrifice on the cross. But that idea absolutely blasphemes the very nature of God who in scripture is declared as a God of love that loved us enough that he would do this for us. He would send his son. 
And again, Philippians 2 addresses that kind of false teaching that would suggest that Jesus had to rescue us out of the hands of God. This plan of redemption is God's plan. And he's the one that sent his son. And Christ, in obedience to his Father's will, submitted entirely to the cross, to Calvary. And why would the son do that? Well, at the end of our passage, we find out why. It's for the glory of God the Father. It glorifies the Father that the Son would sacrifice Himself and now be exalted by that same God for that sacrifice. Once again, no true believer could presume that God is just this angry, hostile God and that Jesus had to rescue us from Him. The plan of redemption is the Father's plan. And this he did for us and for his own glory. This brings us to our text this morning, understanding understanding what Paul is writing or what Paul is communicating in what possibly is a hymn of the church. In declaring the exaltation of Christ, the words that are used here are the the super-exaltation, the high-exaltation, or the hyper-exaltation exaltation in other words god has exalted his son to the highest level possible and then this hymn or these words of paul go on to express this high exaltation for us beginning with a highly exalted position or we could say a title or the name and that's what paul says here in verse 9 for this reason also god highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name. And that very declaration tells us that what Jesus Christ did in his incarnation and the humiliation of the cross was the greatest act ever committed. Ever. Greater than creation itself. Greater than the dividing of the Red Sea. Greater than the raising of dead and any other miracle is this act. Because according to Scripture, by this act, the Father has exalted His Son to the highest position possible. The highest level. The name above every name. Now, Paul is not focusing the attention on the name Jesus or the five letters that make up the name Jesus. There are other people in Scripture given the name Jesus. In fact, the Hispanic community loves to name their children Jesus. It's not the specific name Jesus that Paul is focusing on in verse 9. It's rather a position. It's a title. It's who Jesus is. And we're going to see this throughout our text, especially as we approach the end in verse 11. Because here in verse 9, Paul does not tell us that name. He doesn't give us the specifics of that name. He just says this name has been elevated beyond any other name. And this is what Peter preached as well. You think back, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. He is this person. And we know that our Christian faith, the gospel itself, is not a mere religion, it's a person, isn't it? Our salvation is a person. It is Jesus Christ. 
And this again is what Isaiah 45 declared. He, God, alone is a Savior. And there is no other. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4, we read that Jesus inherited a more excellent name than the angels. And that is given in a specific context. If you look back at Hebrews chapter 1, the previous context describes this for us, that in these last days, God has spoken to us through His Son, who is appointed heir of all things. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. In other words, He is God. And after he made purification of our sins on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And therefore God the Father has given to him a name that is far above even the angels. To refer to Jesus Christ then as the Son of God is not the same as saying that you and I are sons of God. You and I are sons of God by adoption. Jesus Christ is a son of God by nature and by virtue of who he is. That's what Paul said in verse 6 of this same chapter in Philippians 2. He existed in the very form of God, the very essence of God. I want you to see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 as well. We're focusing our attention on the person in this name, Jesus the position that God has given to him. And the position, the name, the preeminence that God has given to his son is based on who Christ is by his nature and what he accomplished on the cross. His works. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, Paul writes that God foretold of the gospel through the prophets. Then pick up in verse 3, concerning his son who is born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who is declared the Son of God with power. How is he declared the Son of God by power? By the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. And then he concludes, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the death on the cross of Christ and his resurrection was a declaration of something. It's a declaration that he truly is the Son of God. The death, the resurrection of God's Son declares Him to be more than just a person. He is in essence, He is in nature God. And because of this, God has given to Jesus Christ a super exalted title, a position that goes well beyond any other position of majesty or we would say royalty. In fact, it may well be that this title that is being implied here in verse 9 is the title of Lord, and we're going to see this in verse 11. But we continue in our text before, uh, before we finish this exalted title by examining now verse 10, a highly exalted submission. A highly exalted submission. Verse 10 goes on to say, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. To this point, we have been considering the response of God to the humiliation and the incarnation of Christ. But notice now the attention is turned on the response of others. 
And the response of others is the response that God demands of those others. And we say that because of this particular congregation as it's identified in verse 10. The congregation I'm referring to is all of the created realm. In heaven, on earth, and below. It includes every created being. And we say here, God has made them to honor the Son, to bow, to submit before the Son, because of who some of this congregation is. What is so unique about this exaltation is that it is universal in its scope. It is not limited to the souls of the redeemed who have been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. All creation, it says, will bow before him. And from this it is clear that there is a future context towards this exaltation in that not all bow before him to this day. So we're looking ahead, aren't we? Verse 10, to a future day when all will bow. We live in a world today that still rejects, that still is offended by. And again, this is what Isaiah 45 was talking about. We live in a world that is ashamed and offended by this Jesus. And what this hymn, what Paul is saying here in verse 10 is, a day is coming when both those in heaven and below are going to bow the knee. They're going to submit to. And this has to include all of humanity, all of the created beings in heaven and below earth. For Christians who were and are suffering and, and contending for the gospel, like Paul, like the Philippians, this would have been encouraging because it would have been telling them, as it tells us today, that to defend the name of Christ, one day will come when all are going to honor him. We're now defending his name, and some degree, we feel the shame of that, don't we? The opposition to that, the rejection of that message, that gospel. This encourages the suffering believer. Even those of you that have suffered within your own families, within your community, or within your workplace, they know you're a Christian. You share Christ with them. But you're rejected, you're ridiculed, maybe despised or treated poorly. We read a text like verse 10 and we're reminded the day will come when every knee will submit to this Jesus. So it tells us that there is a future day coming when all beings will recognize Jesus for who he is and they will respond to his exalted position in submission. Some will bow in joyful adoration, while others are going to bow in fearful surrender. He will be revered as Lord by both the reprobate and the believer. Now, three categories of kneelers are given in this passage, yet the three divisions that Paul gives to us are meant to communicate that all of the universe is going to be found submitting to Christ in that day. But just take note with me of these three kneelers, beginning with those in heaven. Those in heaven that will bow must include the angels, the seraphim, and the other heavenly created beings. It must also include those who have passed from this life, having been justified by faith, the saints of old, 
and the believers of present who have passed on. And because this response of every knee bowing is a future worship, it must include the church as well. The church that dies today and yesterday, but the church that dies in the future. Heaven is pictured throughout God's word as a place of joyful worship by those gathered to honor the Son. And every time we see a picture given to us in the word of God of heaven, we see that reverential joy. Worshippers that are there gladly to honor the Son. The second of the kneelers are those on earth. Those on earth must include both the redeemed and the unredeemed alike. The unsaved of the world show visible evidence of their lack of submission to Christ in the present. Even those who are most religious and yet have rejected Jesus Christ as the Son of God give visible and audible testimony of their failure to bend the knee before Christ as the God of heaven. As with those in heaven, the redeemed presently recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior on the earth as well. And this contrasts those who have rejected Christ on the earth. We're included in that, aren't we? We're in that profile. We're presently on this earth. But in a sense, we have bent our knee in submission to Christ, His saving grace and His lordship over us. We bow our knee to Him now, but it's my guess that we're going to do so in a much more full and reverent way in that day. And I say this in some measure to our shame. Because while we worship the ascended Christ now, we have to admit that we are not nearly as uh, submissive to His will as we ought to be. This is as true for the Philippians as it is for us. Otherwise, Paul would not have needed to write this passage. We can be very reluctant to live in full surrender and submission to the will of Christ as the one exalted by God as our Lord. We all too often have found other things to devote ourselves to, other things to commit our time to. He doesn't always have the preeminence in our life. We say this to our shame. Even though we are those who have bent our knee before Him. A day is coming when we're going to bend the knee more fully and more reverently and, and much more honor and dignity than we do today, sadly. And the third group of kneelers are those who are under the earth. Those who will kneel before Jesus in that day from under the earth refers to the fallen angels, the demonic realm, and the unredeemed who have died rejecting Christ. They're held in anticipation of the coming judgment and their eternal punishment is what they await. Even still, they will bow before Jesus Christ in recognition of His eternal lordship and His exaltation. Their reverence for Christ will not be one of joyful adoration, but of a dreadful, a dreadful surrender. They will submit to His rule and to His word but the atmosphere of that kneeling before him will be sadness, regret, sorrow, and fear. Remember, hell is a place of weeping, gnashing of teeth, a fire that will not be quenched. Now, these three categories of kneelers are intended to communicate to the church the three realms of the universe that are under the reign of Christ. In other words, all of creation. 
And in our text, they are pictured as those who are compelled to submit to the exalted position that has been granted to Jesus Christ by God the Father. None are left out, but all of creation will openly express their full surrender to the authority of Jesus Christ. At His name, it says, they will bow. God gave to Jesus Christ a name above every name, and He will cause all to kneel before His Son, and He will require every tongue to confess that His Son is Lord. That's where we're going now in verse 11. A highly exalted confession. Verse 11 brings us to this confession of every person that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now to this point in our text, uh, Paul has not fully identified the name that God has bestowed on His Son that every knee is going to bow before and surrender to. But here in verse 11, we come to the climax of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And it says, and that every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is important to see in this confession is that though it is universal in its scope, yet this is not a saving confession by all. In other words, because in that day every tongue will confess is not telling us that every tongue will be saved. And we saw this again in Isaiah 45. So if you would go back to Isaiah 45. This is a critical passage. This Old Testament prophecy. Regarding Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 45. It says in verse 23. That before this one. Who is declared to be the Savior God. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. And then we come to verse 24. And says, will confess, come to him, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. All those who resisted, all those who rejected, all those who objected to this one will be put to shame. And we know as believers there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are here as a believer, there is no shame. We look forward to no shame. But not so with those who have rejected, even though they are found here in Isaiah 45, confessing the name, they're still experiencing the shame because of their rejection. I just want to put up before you a statement by one scholar in his commentary who writes, of this confession, the open and irrevocable admission that this is the rightful Lord of the universe because God has installed him on the seat of uncontested authority. That's why they're going to submit. They can do no other. They have rejected God's Son. They've rejected God as the only true God. They have rejected submitting to Him, but the day is going to come when they must submit and they must confess, indeed, Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Jesus Christ is that God of Isaiah 45. And there is no other. There is no other Savior. And that day will come and prove to them that He is the uncontested authority over all. And this is why our text is saying God has highly exalted Him 
for those who have protested the lordship of Christ, whether on this earth or below this earth, they're going to be forced to make the very same confession that you and I make today of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. And we declare that with joy and with adoration. They one day will be forced. They, meaning those that have rejected, have been hostile to Jesus Christ. They will one day be forced to make this confession. And it speaks of the sovereign reign of Christ over all. And as that quote suggested, none will be able to contest his authority. As Isaiah 45 so clearly declares, God is one and there is no other. But this confession also makes the point that the true identity of Jesus Christ is that of being that one true Lord. Notice how Isaiah 45 speaks of this one God as the creator. All things were formed by him. In him, this is a savior and there is no other. And then it comes down to verse 23, which the New Testament in Philippians 2 quotes. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that this God is the Jesus Christ of the New Testament. That Jesus Christ is is Lord. Now in the Hebrew mind, God was known as Yahweh. And you know probably from your Hebrew history that the Jews wouldn't even pronounce that name for fear that they would speak it in vain. And therefore they referred to God as Adon or Adonai or Lord, right? In the Greek, Kyrios. Lord declares the same thing. He, Yahweh, is God. This is why this title in Philippians 2 and verse 11 is critical to our understanding. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He's Adonai. He is Kyrios, Lord. And Isaiah 45 makes that declaration so clear. For those religions, those cults, declare themselves to be Christian, but reject Jesus Christ as God come in flesh, how do they deal with Isaiah 45, which repeatedly again and again says there is but one God, there is no other. There is a Savior, there is no other in this one God. He is the creator God. And then it comes down to that 23rd verse. And the New Testament opens up that 23rd verse and says this one that people kneel before and confess is none other than who? Jesus Christ, the Lord God. It is an unmistakably clear declaration that the one true God is this God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's why this title, this name, this position being declared in verse 11 is so profound. In Psalm 2, and we saw this in our study, evening study, of the Psalms just a few weeks ago in Psalm 2, that Christological or Messianic passage that declares, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Among scholars, there's really not full agreement on the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. But what does emerge in this discussion that when it comes to the understanding of the triune nature of God, the one true God, there's an understanding that Jesus Christ in his incarnation is 
that God. He always has been. While Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, has always existed in the form of God and is equal to God, yet because of the incarnation, there is now a new understanding of the second person of the Godhead. That much we have to understand. In the incarnation, there's a new understanding of the second person of that Godhead. He who existed as God set aside his eternal glories, his external glories and manifestations and humbled himself to take on the appearance of a man. He took upon himself the form of a slave and humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross to make payment for our sins. And while his divine nature as God has never changed, he now bears the appearance of the crucified and resurrected Son of God. And therefore, when the New Testament declares, this is God, Jesus Christ is Yahweh, the Lord God, we have a better understanding, at least I hope we do, that who we're talking about is the one that became incarnate, who humbled himself, died, was resurrected, ascended to the Father, and glorified in that post-incarnate state. And I'm not sure I can really describe as well as I'd like to what I believe verse 11 is making clear to us. But in the book of Revelation, and if you would turn back there with me, I want you to see the description that John gives to us of this second person of the triune Godhead. Because now this is showing us a new understanding of that second person, the Son of God. In Old Testamental times, we see him in passages like Isaiah 45. But now, having been born as one of us, having died, raised up in glory, ascended to the Father, there is a new understanding of this second person of the triune Godhead, this Son of God. And John is puzzled by it. He's captivated by this vision that Jesus Christ gives to John of himself. In verse 12 through verse 18 of chapter 1, follow along with me. John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash, his head, his hair were like white snow, or white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. John is trying his best to describe what he saw. In this Jesus Christ, God, Lord. Now resurrected, now glorified but in some sense still that post-incarnate Christ who has taken on flesh that has now been crucified 
that has now died and is glorified. And there he is. And John's trying to paint that picture as best he can with words so that we might see it. Later in Revelation, further descriptions are given to us of this glorified Christ. But the resurrected and glorified Christ still bears the scars in his hands. And this is an interesting presentation of the glorified Christ, even as you go back to John's gospel. And remember, Thomas, he didn't want to believe the testimony of the other apostles, that Christ has risen from the dead. So when Jesus faced off with Thomas, he said, look here, touch my wounds, reach to my side. In some profound way, this second person of the Godhead has retained the scars of his suffering, even in his glorified state. And when we consider the name above every name that God has given to his Son, there is part of this that has not changed. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the part I can't fully comprehend is that Jesus is also this resurrected, glorified Christ that we see pictured here in Revelation 1. He is the same, and yet there's something different. He is Jesus Christ, the Lord. The Lord God is the same Jesus who came to this earth as the promised Messiah. He existed as God while in the eternal heavens. He humbled himself to set aside his divine privileges to take upon himself the role of a slave. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for our sins. He was raised from the dead and ascended to his throne in heaven. And now as the resurrected and glorified son of man, he assumes his rightful position as the sovereign ruler over all. He is still the son of God. He lives to make intercession for his redeemed people. And he exercises his full authority as the Lord God of creation. It is this Jesus that every tongue will confess to be the Lord God of eternity. The unbeliever today, they mock the person of Jesus Christ. The cults, they say he is not God, he's just a man. Islam say he's just a prophet. But God exalted his son to a different position, didn't he? He is Jesus Christ, the Lord God, and there is no other God besides him. He is the Savior. There is no other Savior besides Him. And the Father has elevated this Son to a position that is far above all others. He is Jesus Christ, Kyrios, Adonai, Lord God, Yahweh. And this is the picture Philippians 2 is giving to us of this post-incarnate Christ, the exalted one. Our text has one more statement to make. And I want to bring our, our time together to an end with that statement. Because verse 11 ends by saying, To the glory of God the Father. And this means that the humiliation of Christ, as well as his high exaltation, displays the majesty of God the Father as it does for his Son, Jesus Christ. In all of this, the good, the righteous, the holy, and the perfect character of God is put on display for us to see. It's not hard for us to see how God's saving grace and his mercy and his love for humanity is seen in the humiliation of his son, in the incarnation of his son. 
We see more clearly the love that God has for sinners and the extent of that love as we look at the cross. But the exaltation of Jesus Christ as Lord also glorifies the Father. It gives testimony to the perfect unity within the triune Godhead when the Scripture says there is God, one God and no other. There is the Father. There is the Son. There is the Spirit. There is one God and no other. And the Son has been exalted to that position. The Son rules the nations in perfect harmony with the Father, exercising the perfect will of God. His sovereign authority puts on display the power and the authority of God Himself. And verse 11 ends with an understanding that the whole discussion that we've been having from verse 1 to the present is all God-centered and God-glorifying. It's God-centered and God-glorifying. This brings us then to the question asked at the beginning. How does all of this relate to the unity of the church? With this in mind, it is also necessary that we're reminded of this point that the whole text has been drawing our attention to unity of fellowship. That's why this has all been given. Paul has directed believers to have this same humility of mind as is witnessed in Christ. And by showing both the incarnation of Christ and his exaltation, we're meant to have a better understanding of the attitude that you and I are to take on in ourselves in ministering in Christian love to one another. It is also why Jesus taught that the one who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbling itself will be exalted. I want you to consider then with me these concluding points. Number one, in serving others, in serving others, God's glory must be our primary objective. Christ glorified God in his humil humility. And we're going to glorify God as we imitate that humility by serving the needs of others. And as we do, it's not going to matter the shame, the sacrifice, the cost to us. Why? Because nothing is going to compare to the cost, the shame, and the humility that our Savior experienced for us. And we can say to ourselves, well, it's too costly for me to serve, to engage in this church, in the ministry of this body, serving one another. Oh, the shame of it. My reputation, what people might say, what it might cost me financially, whatever it is, nothing is going to compare to what it costs the Savior to die for us. That's why this text is essential for us to see. It's all about the glory of God and not the glory of me. And we have got to get beyond this selfish idea, this self-centered philosophy, that if I do this thing, if I serve in this way, it's going to cost me. Paul is trying to wipe that malicious thought out of our minds and say, no, no, let this mind be in you. It's about the glory of God. Second, as with Christ, we may not see God fully glorified in our earthly journey. Remember, Christ did not see the full glorification of the church and all of the lost souls coming to faith until after he's risen and ascended. 
when his earthly journey was done, the fruit of his work continues to come in to the glory of God the Father. And the day will come when all are going to kneel, all are going to confess the glory of Jesus Christ to the honor and the glory of God himself. This is encouraging. This is what we need to understand because as we're ministering, we may not see the fruit of our work in this lifetime. But we serve nonetheless. We serve nonetheless. Third, the church is destined to be glorified with Christ. We're destined to be glorified with Christ. And I want to turn your attention to John 17. We were here a couple of weeks ago in the prayer, the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. We're going to end on this, so join me in John chapter 17 and verse 22 and verse 23. The word of Jesus that all who would be humbled will be exalted was not merely his own personal testimony. It was a promise that he makes to his people. As God the Father is glorified, the Son is glorified, but his church is also glorified. This is what Jesus prayed for in John 17, verse 22. The glory, Father, which you have given me, I have given to them, my people, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Truly our salvation by itself is a sufficient grace. It's a sufficient prize. Eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, spared from the eternal judgment. Isn't that enough? And yet what Jesus is praying for is in addition to that, we may enjoy His glory, the glory that I have, that they may enjoy that too. But notice the context, unity, that they may be one even as you and I, Father, are one, together united. This is what Paul has been teaching in Philippians chapter 2. And as we are united, looking out for the interests of others, putting aside self, that kind of unity is where we experience the glory of Christ. His unity with the Father is now seen among us. The promise here is that in this kind of selfless consideration of the needs of others this kind of unity we are enjoying the glory of christ himself and that's only a small taste of what is yet to come for the church and do you not praise god for that in the midst of the turbulence and the messiness and the filth of this life we look forward to sharing eternally the glory of this one jesus christ who is lord god and praise him for that. Let's close in prayer. Father, how can we thank you enough for the gift of our salvation, for the privilege of bearing your son's name, being washed by his sacrifice, being cleansed and made whole by his humiliation. But then, Father, in his exaltation, that we as your redeemed people are going to share in your glory, Father, we are talking about a rich privilege, a prize that we have. And it demands that we keep our focus on the glory of our Father, the glory of Christ, His Son. As a church, help us to learn these valuable lessons of our unity and our Christian love 
and our fellowship together to learn from the master himself that this attitude that was in him can be found in your church today, in Summit Park today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.